Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Hello, and welcome to the Fintech Impact Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today's guest is Brad Katansky. Brad is the co-founder and CEO of Honest Technologies. Honest is an online platform that allows users to aggregate all their financial data as well as work collaboratively with different professionals online. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Brad Katansky. Hello, Brad. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Jason, for inviting me. I'm really uh, excited to speak with you today. My pleasure. Thanks for coming in. So, Brad, what is your position? You are the what at Honest? I am the co-founder and CEO of Honest Technologies. Fair enough. And just to be clear, Honest is not spelled in the conventional way, so... No, it's uh, O-N-I-S-T. Uh, we spent weeks, if not months, trying to find a name for the company. I thought that was great, actually, when I saw it. it was, and it was we went perfect. to the, thes- the thesaurus, and they said Honest, spelled O-N hyphen I-S-T. That actually exists? And, uh, and we said, that's great. We want honest, uh, honest advice, honest opinions, honest relationships, and that's, uh, that's why we went with it. Fantastic. So tell us, tell the listeners exactly what it is Honest does. At its core, <laughs> Honest connects households, so husbands, wives, family members, uh, with their financial data and documents. So we allow you to link your accounts, bank accounts, credit card accounts, investment accounts, mortgages, and then share them with, with people in your household. Like I said, family members, uh, in my scenario, my wife and I share our financial accounts. Before we had many logins and IDs, sometimes for the same accounts, we can now both collaborate around our household finances. And then we also use it for our own parents, uh, my parents who are aging, and I act as a financial coordinator for them. I'm now able to monitor my father's spending and bring my, uh, my mother into the picture as well. Uh, we also allow for the collaboration of documents so core life documents, the easy ones to think about are wills, life insurance policies, operating agreements for businesses like that. Mm-hmm. Usually they're stuck in drawers or people don't know where they are. Uh, and people being the people that need access to it most, spouses being the most uh, obvious uh, example. And by unifying all this financial data and documents into one platform and then allowing granular access, uh, we've created a platform that we call the Household Financial Management which is kind of the evolution of the personal financial management platform. So essentially what you are, in my opinion, is you're, you know, for those of you familiar with mint.com, it's that on steroids. I mean, the thing about mint is it's a one-to-one relationship, right? It's basically, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll have to share my login with my wife if I wanted to use it, but there is no separate identity. Like if I want to share that information with anyone, I'm giving up my, my primary login, correct? That's exactly correct. And, uh, you know, mint on steroids, it's a, a great way to describe it. The key is for us, and maybe we could talk a little bit, I'll jump ahead into target market, is once you get to a certain point in life, and it's usually around 35 years old, your life gets more complex and your needs start to change. And so that's really our focus is it moves away from the personal towards the household. And it's not just granting access to a spouse. It could be brothers, sisters, multiple parties. It could be people like yourself professionals that are, are helping manage the affairs, the financial affairs of the family. Yeah. And that was the most exciting part of it for me was the ability to say, hey, here's a platform that I can finally collaborate with my clients. Like other ones have existed in the past whereby I could store documents and share that with them. And that was a one dimensional experience. Whereas what you guys have created is basically the ability for me to 
have access, me and other professionals who are working in conjunction with the client to have access to that data, which was something that was sorely missing before. Great point. We really try to break down silos. So when we, we started out, it was, well, let's actually, the, the seed for Honest starts several years ago. My father and I, who are very close, his cognitive ability started to uh, decline. And uh, over many months, we had the conversation about him saying, Brad, I need you to take over my finances. And at the time, I didn't know what it meant, but I knew that I had to start uh, gathering data. And the first wall that I ran into was I thought I would go to my mother and say, hey, what do you guys have and where is it? And uh, there was nothing. She knew absolutely nothing. Seen that happen far too often. Uh, you know, married over 50 years now, and it's, it's not, wasn't done by design. It just, it, there were no systems available, especially in their generation. And it just, the wall or the divide kept growing further and further apart until I got involved. So the, the first silo that we wanted to break down was spouse, husband to wife. And as I got involved in my father's life, I said, okay, great. I need to find out the professionals that he works with. And that took it, uh, quite a while actually to figure out who that was. There were people on both sides of the border in Canada and the U.S. And the second silo that we had to break down was the professionals working with each other. The key is, is breaking down silos. And through a couple of years of researches, we realized the world's connected a million different ways. We know through every social channel that we have, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, um, we're connected in so many different ways. But when it comes to finances, uh, we still operate in the dark ages. So silos between husbands and wives, husbands and, and husband, wives and wives, whatever it is at the household level, there's still these silos. We, we try to break that down uh, as you extend the household beyond the immediate household, but to to parents, the massive demographic shift of, of the aging population and the need to, to service them it usually falls on the shoulders of adult children. We're breaking down that silo as well and allowing for collaboration around those environments. And then the final one is professionals. It's not often that professionals have the ability to sit together and collaborate around their clients' uh, true household financial matters. And so those are the, the walls that we're bringing down uh, and the interesting part for us is we thought it should be available to to anyone, a solution like this. Mm -hmm. And our focus initially was on the, um, the B2C market because that's where our personal needs came from or my personal needs came from. Uh, what's interesting is that approximately 15 to 18% of our users right now are actually not consumers. They're enterprise firms because they're looking for ways to break down the silos that exist within their own relationships with their clients and the other advisors that the clients are working for. And that's why I've taken a hard look at it. I mean, the ability to have a, an online platform whereby, I mean, first of all, it makes financial planning a lot easier if they if I have data aggregation. You know, the fact that they have ever, all their data going into one spot, if I can tear that away and put that into a financial plan, I can actually, you know, instead of having to bother them, how much do you think you're spending on household effects? Well, this time I know. In addition to that, to be able to have a central repository for all that stuff and, you know, some of the other functions you guys have built out, like communication and mapping of relationships, that's, it's hugely valuable. It's extremely valuable, and it's interesting, the, the trend, and you can probably talk about this a little bit better, is mm -hmm. it, it's not about, when I took over my father's finances, his, his wealth advisor, who I, who I won't mention, um, <laughs> I called him up and said, hi, I'm, I'm Brad Katansky, and, and their answer was, well, almost, who are you? And do you know my father's uh, wife? Who is she? Do you know that my father is 82 years old, and he's got a pretty risky portfolio, and, and the, the comment was, Hey, we're managing the account. We're beating the S&P. That's not the point. And, you know, and I, I get so frustrated when I hear that nonsense from advisors. And, you know, anyone who's listening, you can hear me out and what think I'm wrong or not. You're going to lose in court every time. The bottom line is not about beating the S&P. It's about, it's about risk tolerance. And anyone who has not realized that yet, go back and listen to the Finometrica conversation. But, uh, yeah, I mean, an 85-year-old 
worrying about being the S&P is not his priority. And, and it wasn't, he, he ended up, uh, he was managing the accounts and he wasn't managing the person uh, no. and the relationships no. and understanding what the household goals were, which was not growth. It could have been, it was actually income and, and capital preservation and yep. maybe some estate planning for the next generation. And that was completely missed. Advisors don't get sued enough. That's the honest truth. I mean, <laughs> uh, no, uh, but here's the way I look at it is that if we actually got taken to task for those types of mistakes, which are obvious, very obvious, we would be a little more gun shy about, about risk tolerance, but we're not, right? So I, the only thing I can say is that maybe it comes down to clients not complaining enough, filing enough complaints, or enough lawsuits happening, because quite frankly, that is an obvious one where the guy was completely offside from any standard I've ever written. Written, read. I won't bash this advisor. Oh, I will. <laughs> There's many reasons I could. Yeah. And the reason, you know, we've, we've spoken several times and the way you think about planning, I personally believe in very strongly, Thank which you. is who's Brad Katansky? He's married. He's got two kids. What are his needs? What's his job? What's investments, his income, his spending? Okay. And how do we create a plan for him and his family? as he navigates life and the different chapters and, and life events that he's going to go through. And so we believe in that very closely. And our, our solution obviously starts towards getting to that goal and allowing advisors to get to that goal. But that's been a nice little uh, surprise for us is that we have you know 15 to 18% of our users who are, are professional firms. We haven't spent any dollars at all to market or, or target them. But it's based off that core need is first stage one is, is get your house organized. And that means, as, as you alluded to earlier, is let's, let's list all the stakeholders in the household. Let's list all the investments that they have. There may be different types of retirement accounts. There may mm -hmm. be different business entities are involved. And there's an entire map that's created of individuals, entities, financial accounts, assets, liabilities, people that they work with, and documents. And it's amazing. Once you have that data in play, the insights that you can get to it or get from it are quite significant. And that's that's what we're playing with right now is, is hey, Jason, you're X years old. I won't put that not on gonna, record. I'm, say yeah, I'm yes, Brad. I'm, I'm 41 years old and I'm married. When I link my bank account, there's a tremendous amount of insights that you can get from that that are really beneficial to the household if they choose to want to receive it. But even things like corporate structure, like in relation, like the thing is, you know, you listen, look at all the best practices in my industry specifically. And, you know, we're always being told to put a fence around the family, you know, get to know who the key stakeholders are. To be able to actually have the client map it out for us as to who the key stakeholders, not only the kids, maybe there's aunts and uncles who are dependents or people that they're related to that they want to include in this. To be, you know, that, that alone just gives us all, all kinds of insight. And oftentimes, you know, something as simple as a corporate map, a client's got no idea what that is. You have to go to the accountant, right? So seeing what the corporate structure is and, and who holds what class of shares to have a live document that the accountants, the lawyers, the, the financial advisors, and the client has access to in real time and can be edited as necessary is, is fantastic. There's some rule, I'll, I'll butcher it right now, obviously, because <laughs> I'm being recorded, but I think on a pricing side, you need to have a 10x benefit, right? And, and if you have that, then your pricing can be justified. Absolutely. Yeah. So you talk about that scenario with corporate organizational chart creation. Yep. We can do uh, a pretty complicated organizational chart in anywhere from a minute to 10 minutes. And then when you share it with your lawyer or your accountant or your wealth advisor or your, your spouse, your partners, whoever it is, and they can update it on the fly from their system, you're talking about saving hours and hours and thousands of dollars from previously would have been spent. And now it's updated all the time and available in the cloud. And so we've had quite a few users that uh, have more complicated affairs or maybe have amassed uh, some more net worth where it gets complicated that love that feature set.
So we talked about three core functions. We talked about the data aggregation. We talked about this data store, the file storage, and the mapping. But can you tell me about the communication platform because that's the other part of, of this? Yep. So we we think about uh, collaboration really as, as two parts. Collaboration part one is is connecting. Hey Jason, I uh, want to invite you into my platform. At this level, you can have access to the entire household. You can have access to the vault. Maybe you could just have access to my my spending. And that's great, but it's not that last mile connectivity, which we thought was was extremely important. So that's allowing for direct messaging. Uh, and it's direct direct messaging with this team. Some people have labeled it the virtual family office and allowing the collaboration within the platform. But it's one-to-one, one-to-many chat or like text messaging. Yeah, so like, an, like an instant message the lawyer and the accountant simultaneously in part of a conversation. They get to it whenever they get to it. And we all have one repository for that communication as opposed to a countless email string, which is already hogging up our inboxes every day. That's exactly correct. So for us, that last mile connectivity was being requested to us from some users. And um, we made it available. And there's a a lot of interest around that. So we're looking at ways of expanding it as well in the future. Fantastic. So that's the core. I mean, it's those four, from my understanding, that's the four kind of so core as, as the platform exists today, yeah. that's the core functionality. We, our CTO has got 20 years of machine learning and AI experience. And we... Well, that's going somewhere interesting, isn't it? I, it well, it is. You know, it, it's, it's a testament to him. He's uh, an amazing guy, highly intelligent, and was, uh, I like to say he was misplaced for two years, just doing a lot of, <laughs> of managing teams. But part of our evolution as a company was... Uh, was hiring well, and uh, I now say I don't want to. Uh, my joke to him is I don't want to see you in the office. I don't want to talk to you. He's just crunching away, and there's. It's early days. We're prototyping some tools, but it's really around the connection between people in the household, professionals they work with, financial accounts they have, financial transactions they have, mm-hmm. and documents. And the insights that you can get around the households and insurance that they may or may not have, insurance that they should have spending patterns and all sorts of correlations, missing documents, missing opportunities that can Mm. be presented to all the household members is fascinating to us. takes time to prototype. Oh, no doubt. But I mean, the one thing you need for AI is a large data set. So he must be like a kid in a candy store with what you guys have got. Yeah, we have, uh, we have, you know, we have some data sets that we're working with and he's a kid in a candy store right now, right? (laughs) He's earned his his time to go and do this stuff. Uh, There's some really interesting stuff we're working on. And Jason, the challenge here is we're always looking for new ideas to to prompt that stuff. As you know, I'm always one to volunteer them whether you want them or not. Um, Let let me challenge you for a second, actually. (laughs) Oh, this is new. Okay, this is the first time. This is is what I'm going to do. Do you know how big the 50-plus market is in the United States? In terms of assets or numbers? What's the size of the U.S. population? 360 million. Say, we'll say three, three fifty, three sixty, something like that. Yeah, three, I think it was three thirty, three forty. No, I might be wrong. Yeah, of that, how many people are fifty plus? Ooh, geez, I'm gonna take a guess. It's approaching two hundred. One hundred and ten million. So it's a third of the population. Oh no, that's actually less than I thought. But yeah, that population, that demographic, is gonna grow by how many people in the next ten years? I'm guessing it's gonna go over two hundred. It's twenty million people. Twenty million is gonna be things. added to that group. So you're next- talking? Okay, so I'm I'm way overestimating, but nevertheless, one ten, so twenty million growth. So yeah, these are people so, who need to get their, their the population. The, yeah. the eighteen to forty nine demographic yeah. is going to grow. This is all estimates. So yeah. by six million in the next ten years. Okay. So the focus is when you look at the fintech, and I'm really going yeah. broad. Is the fintech focus has been on the millennials in the U.S. Canada is a little bit different because of electronic adoption. They're more they're less intimidated by technology, quote unquote. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right? The, the millennial generation is very grew up with the smartphone. Absolutely, they're um, natives. They're natives. 
but when you start thinking about the size of the of this demographic that we're talking about, with this is just fifty plus, yep. when you start bringing it into my demographic, you're looking at 140, 150 million people, yep. and it's growing fast. And they control seventy. The number is ranged from sixty-five to eighty percent of the investable assets. Mm-hmm. You have this massive problem coming. Yeah, the wealth transfer is coming. We've been talking about it, talking about it for years, and it's not going to the millennials. It's going to the young baby boomers and the Gen Xers first. Mm-hmm. So who's focusing hmm. on that, right? You, no one's focusing on that cohort who's basically not as tech savvy as the people below them, but have grown up working with computers their entire lives. Yeah, are, are facing these problems. Yeah. Right, I'm facing it myself as a with my own uh, spouse, connecting, yep. collaborating, organized and want to be organized. So it's important to us. The average age of a caregiver in the United States is 49. The second you hit that life event, it gives a new realization to yourself and makes you start thinking about your own planning. And um, as you look at it from the professional side, there's an aging of, of client bases. Mm-hmm. And there's this opportunity first to connect with the next generation, to be able to keep your business going and growing Absolutely. in the future. So there's some real interesting demographic shifts. You're starting to see some companies focus on it in the United States. It's getting becoming a little bit more buzzworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the opportunity sets for professionals to focus on that marketplace and service it better, we think is tremendous. Sometimes overlooked with this millennial focus. So. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, you have two polar opposites there. You have the financial industry who generally tends to skew older because they want the people with money. So you're typically getting the, you're typically getting the targeting of the 50 plus. And then you have the fintechs are basically targeting the people under 30, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, there's, an under, there's, a, there's that period between 30 to 50 where they're basically in wealth accumulation mode where you typically get the smaller advisors typically handling them, you know, the guys who don't have million dollar minimums and whatnot. But yeah, the, the, the bigger services have always been kind of polarized on both ends of the barbell, which doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So um, we're talking about a lot of really confidential data. And one of the things that impressed me was the way you guys thought about security when you first set this thing up. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Thank you for that question, yeah. uh, because I, I wouldn't have brought it up. And it was probably one of the most important things for us. And we think of security, security and privacy, uh, the two separate things. Privacy and our privacy solution actually is an enhancement to our security solution. And it really started from day one when we were thinking about solving the problem and building the software. We said, how are we going to get our first users on to link accounts? They're going to know that, you know, that Brad's looking at their net worth and they're never going to want to do it. So how do we build a... a are you that voyeuristic that you want to look at? Yeah, exactly. No, well, I mean, how do yeah. I convince you to do that? Absolutely. And so it led us down a path for many months where we actually spoke to the CSO of a a major wirehouse in the U.S. I'm not. Mm-hmm. We're actually not allowed to say his name. In Canada, people know what a wirehouse is. But oh, wirehouse. It doesn't um, matter. It's a large broker. Large broker. Yeah. Excuse me. And um, hopefully some Americans got that. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, confused. I was born and raised in Montreal, by the way. I lived in, uh, I've lived in the States for 20 years, so I'm confused. But uh, <laughs> he said you can build your software two ways. You can build it to get it up quick and then overlay security afterwards, or you can build security and privacy uh, in your architecture from day one. If you do the first path, you're done. You're going, yeah. to get, you're going to have problems. Yeah. So we went the other way. And what that means is no honest employee can actually see. We have multiple databases, one that stores uh, your personal information and one that stores your assets. So we know that Jason um, exists in the system and we know that a user exists with X amount of assets and, and liabilities, but we don't have the keys to connect it to. Only the user does, uh, whether it's the professional or the consumer. And so there's heavy use of encryption and secret keys, but the goal is to go the opposite way of a lot of other solutions have gone. Mm. I won't mention names where it's either a lead gen tool or they're selling your data and monetizing you a different oh, way. No one knows who that is. Uh, but um, <laughs> we can't do that 
we don't do that. Uh, and the point is to to offer something value add where you ultimately are not the. But you know, and that's that's another market niche you kind of rolled into there because at the same time, the lead generation is obvious, right? I mean, if you put it in there, it's going to be a certain advisor base that's going to that's going to basically come after you and, and try to sell you services. The data sales, they've never looked at enabling any advisors. But business. I mean, I often looked at Mint.com as a half-baked idea because they seemed to stop dead cold once Intuit bought it. But nevertheless, what you've done is basically allowed me to have that same power, but essentially do so in a way whereby it's now collaborative, right? And now, and now I can basically, I, instead of instead of basically a client having to select to share with me their password to to Mint.com for all the security concerns that may give, yep. it, I basically have my own username, my own password, and I have whatever access you've given me from your end and your username and password. That's exactly right, and I, I won't. Yeah, I, I won't, you'll never hear me uh, talk badly about a competitor, so I, I won't do that. At least uh, not on mic. I can get you to talk. No, there's no. I mean, they, they, Mint's done amazing things. There's no yep. question. Right? They, were they, the, yeah. they blazed the trail for many companies uh, and continue to do amazing things. And, and we're not trying to go after the Mint customer. We're trying to do different things, yeah. a different demographic. And uh, you know, there's an, another great stat that I, I just read in an ARP report that of the. F- 50 plus market, 45% of them are sharing login IDs and passwords with family members and professionals. And how many of those passwords are password one, two, three? I mean, like we see this every year, right? Like every year. It's 50 million people that are giving their login ID and passwords out because they don't have a way to to share it with someone. And meanwhile, a lot of time that login information gives you authorization to do things like send money from one account to another. So the the, the ability for, or the potential for elder abuse is just ridiculous. And thank you for saying that. We're we're a read-only site, so the ability to transact on our platform and transfer money uh, does not exist. And so um, that's an important yeah. You talk about security and privacy. Is we we don't allow for money transfer now well, at all. It's interesting too because I mean, I've, not just us. I mean, talking to accounts in the past who were tech savvy, we've we've often shared and commiserated over the frustration we have with banks at not allowing for something called like an advisor login, right? Like, why can a client not give me a you know why can there not be a separate card for me as the advisor who ha- cannot transact anything but has view only access? Right? Why is that not an option? Because we, especially the accounts, some of these guys are acting like my accounts, acting as my, they handle all my, like, all my accounts payable, right? Like I have to give them that kind of access. But some of these people are there in day to day transactions. And the fact that they have to, I have to violate some sort of privacy policy in order to give them access is ridiculous. So, I mean, you couldn't have found a, uh, a tougher, <laughs> more discussed topic right now. Yeah. And that's data access. Who owns that data? Who should be granting access to that? And you're data. heavily involved in that conversation. I'm heavily right involved in it, and and you know I've got to. Do you speak to that, or how much can you speak to that? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's a it's a tricky topic, and yeah. I'm open for conversations with everyone. So I was in Washington in November meeting with Treasury. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're learning to uh, they're looking to to learn more about data access and and why there's the need for data access. So you can zoom out, you can zoom in. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the okay. at the end of the day, the financial world is the last. One of the, the last, other than the highly regulated, so financial healthcare, where data is still operating in really restrictive silos. And, yeah, and they'll argue really it's flowing, right? Who would benefit? Yeah. The customer would benefit 100%. through lower fees and better services. Now, the question is that if it was an open free market right now, there would be problems for financial institutions, and that's not good for society. So I get a gradual path towards it. 
but even so, we're seeing really good steps. Like, I mean, you look at stuff that's, I think Australia's probably basically straight, the, uh, blazed the trail on this in terms of access and allowing, enforcing banks to actually push that data out to third-party providers, anyone who's been authorized by the client. The U.S., you have more of that happening. In Canada, we're still in the Stone Age, and we basically have to re-enter our Canada passwords. Canada is, is, is trying you know. to, to be more forward. Y- well, we've fallen behind. That's the problem. Europe is, has led the, char- led the charge. Uh, it's with PSD2, one of ineffective called two weeks ago or mm-hmm. so ago. It's not going to be a hockey stick up, but the whole point is that consumers should be able to get access to their, their data and permission whoever they want. Now, the question is, and the banks have to make it available, how it's made available is and the big question. This is what drives me nuts. We were talking earlier how basically under, under law we have access and technically we own the data ourselves because we are the consumer. However, then they give it to you in the most painful way possible. It's like, yeah, it's, it's there, but crawl over glass. It's like, well, that's not useful to me. If I can't get it in an easily digestible, easily monitored or, or, or processed way, then it's pointless, right? Yep. So, and not only that, I mean, not only the, you know, you look at most bank websites, they'll charge you a fee for anything past 12 months. Which is like, okay, great, I have access, but now I got to pay for it? Like, this is a bizarre concept to me. And, you know, the, the simple cases of like, how much have I contributed to this type of tax preferential account over time, mm-hmm. even though I switched vendors three or four times, you know, that sort of data should be easily accessible to someone. We have no idea. And I've often, you know, and again, I will throw criticisms. I've often said that, unfortunately, some of these companies are treating access to data as a moat. As a way to basically, you know, keep the client rain to them because oh, you don't want to lose all this stuff and start from zero. Well, that's is that really is that really going to keep clients there? But when you talk to them about letting it, letting it run free, some of them have this fear they're going to lose clients on mass. Boy, I mean, I don't think we have enough time to go. On, <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you know, for me, this is extremely interesting topic. And so, I, what will end up happening is I may go into too many tangents. Data access is a is a major issue. I think. But the know, some is, early trends is, is BBVA in yeah. um, has created APIs for every part of their of their suite of services. Mm-hmm. Um, so people that want to build on top of their infrastructure can come in and do that. Now that's a really forward way of thinking and operating. And so really they should all be working on the move, quite frankly. Correct is is I, for me right. The, the issue is I'm not here to, to displace banking services. I'm not an enemy. I don't want want to position yeah. myself as an enemy. We actually want to be a friend because. We believe that connecting and collaborating with anything in life leads to better outcomes. And when it comes to financial data and documents in your financial life, it should be the same way. So we can't provide every service, but you may be able to provide a service for me or some of your clients. So we should be able to connect. But you have peer-to-peer lenders. You have all these other businesses, payments that are coming in and stealing business. And so that's where all these profits are in business because they've failed to adapt. Like this is the reality is the, the paradigm is shifting under them and they're not moving. And you made the point about this being a contentious issue, but the reality is we have the right to that data legally. So making it a stack of papers as opposed to a data feed is just almost being vindictive about the entire thing for lack of a better so term. The, the breaking, you're breaking your terms and conditions, your TNCs. That's well, this the, is fun. So the funny thing is they say, oh yes, if you use one of these data aggregation services, you're breaking your terms and conditions and now your fraud protection is voided. Well, that's funny, but then the same bank will turn around and say, oh, by the way, we offer a data aggregator. So basically you're saying, if I do this with anyone else, I'm breaking the rules, but if I do this with you, I'm not. Like, I just feel that's a court case that's going to be very easily won if it ever gets to court. It definitely doesn't make sense, right? My favorite example is bookkeeping, right? Bookkeepers or bookkeeping software needs access to bank accounts to make it simple. Like Zero or QuickBooks, absolutely. Or, or Wave, who's Wave, done amazing yeah. things uh, out, of, out of Toronto. And they're not a threat to the bank, so they have easy integrations. It's no problem. Yeah, but they still can't get the feeds. 
Yeah, just breaks down. <laughs> and um, I know from experience. <laughs> same here. I, when I slam the t my hand on the table when my, my link's broken, uh, it's really frustrating. And it takes three days to get them back up. Yeah. Yeah. But data access is uh, is a big issue and creating an industry standard around it, right? If there's a, a set a API protocol and way for for this information to change hands, and then you have the issue of the big institutions, Ken in the U.S. can spend the money to do it, but the smaller institutions, what are they going to do? It's very true. I mean, it's, you know, we're also, we're also facing the kind of, you know, paradigm shift that is blockchain, right? At the same time, right? Like we, with the, well, exactly. So this is, this is the thing, right? We're looking at the potential for very large distributed ledgers that are open that basically would reduce the cost of a lot of deliver these delivery, right? That would be one of those paradigm changes that allow, would allow those little players to be able to actually compete. Yep. But again, and I can understand people's reluctance to move on this now because what if we decide to change the architecture in the next five years? So this is where I like to zoom out. Fair enough. Right? And we'll, we'll come to the same conclusion. If we put on our, our lenses and look into the future, yep. in five to 15 years, we're pretty certain the way it's going to play out. Yeah. And what's going to happen is some players are going to go away, new yep. ones are going to come in, and the flow of information will be more seamless. Absolutely. Um, and right now we're right in the middle of that battle, whether it's in the middle of the beginning of it. And it's interesting. And I, for me, it's not, you know, I don't take the view, give me access. Well, I do, but then again, if it's my data, that's... Yeah, no, <laughs> well, I, from my data, yeah. like, yes, I yeah, want your access data, Absolutely. Data. But when I go to, to or speak with financial uh, institutions is there's shared responsibility. I'm not saying I take the data and if I get hacked, sorry, you got to take care of your own customers. Yep. There is a shared responsibility, yep. right? And we take security and privacy very seriously. Absolutely. So let's have a conversation around shared responsibilities. Yeah. And minimum standards surrounding security. Like, are you imposing two-factor authentication as a minimum? 100%. Yeah. There's no question that that's... Anyone who won't have that conversation is probably not someone who should be sitting at the table. Well, that's interesting because that's similar to what's recently happened with the U.S. credit card system. So the architecture there was very old. They were still, I mean, you went down there, still up here in Canada, you go to the U.S. and you guys were all down on, on swipe cards still. Chip and pin hadn't really had much of an impact to you. Whereas in Europe, it had been around for over a decade in Canada, pretty close to it too. And we were also further ahead on tap to pay. And then Apple Pay comes along and says, hey, we can make tap to pay as the most secure thing in history. Mm -hmm. And suddenly now visas are re visa and not all the all the merchant banks are rewriting the um, rewriting the rules such that the in the case of fraud, the company responsible, the individual responsible, is the weakest point in the chain. So if you were holding on to that old point of sale machine because you didn't want to bother upgrading, you didn't see the point of doing anything other than swipe and sign. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Now if they're saying that that's no longer the that's that's a weak part of the chain, and someone commits fraud, you're the one eating the fraud. So, yeah, so that's why you've been seeing in down south and you've been seeing an implementation proliferation of newer uh, oh, point of sale machines. In the past 18 months, I went from having never to having to put yeah. my, my card with the chip in to now 50% of the time at least. Yeah. And how often do you see the you know pay here with Apple or with, uh, with, uh, well, with I, Google Pay? I pay with my watch yep. as I, much as I can. If I, <laughs> I, I get well, frustrated when I don't see tap to pay. I read that they're also looking to get rid of signatures required. As well. Well, you want to hear a funny one. So this is a sidetrack. We'll tell this story. There was one Texas uh, state governor, oh, not governor, senator, I think it was Texas, who basically didn't like the idea of Apple Pay and said that they that, that state still had to print up a receipt and have people sign it. Apparently, your fingerprint wasn't good enough, yeah. <laughs> but nevertheless. That makes sense. Yeah. So, I mean, like, that's this is the thing is that it's a similar conversation. You know, the, sometimes the, the conversation around making changes across the board is to say, well, look, you know, our security standard is here. So, you're the weak link in the chain, right? And you can't have, I mean, if you came out with, let's just say you had some sort of biometric system for, mm -hmm. 
for basic biometrics for those who are listening is whether it's fingerprint, iris scans, facial scans, whatever it is, some sort of authentication utilizing you and your person as the authentication as opposed to a password. Honest comes out with the most secure thing possible. You know, our bank you know, passwords that are one, two, three, four, five are starting to look pretty damn silly, mm-hmm. right? And I, I make fun of one, two, three, four, five, but frankly, you see the top 10 listed passwords that are used. And of course, they are like password one, password two, one, two, three, four, five. Like it's, so the current security regime, quite frankly, is insufficient, right? So the fact you're having those conversations, it's good. You're having a, you're, you're trying to raise the boat, you know, the, the, level of, the level of security across the board looks like. And you talk about security, something that, that we've talked about internally is if you have fraud in your account, if the bank doesn't catch it, and systems are pretty advanced now, where you'll notify that you'll you'll usually get notified pretty quickly, we actually act as an enhancement to it. And this Absolutely, is, we're talking a little bit about some future functionality, but it is the ability to analyze your data and then notify people immediately. Notify your team of people, right? So it could be your spouse, it could be your sister, your brother, it could be your advisor, Jason, your accountant, your lawyer, and start automating that process. Hey, transaction in Montana and send it to the accountant, right? Because maybe they're the, the quarterback for your, your family. That, that's fantastic also from the elder abuse standpoint because, Boom. yeah, exactly, right? Like, I mean, the number of cases I hear, like people, you know, they go, they go to the bank with one of, their, one of their kids and suddenly, you know, 20,000 gets cleared out and the other three kids are wondering what happened to all the money because mom and dad can't feed themselves now. That sort of flag is huge. And who do, whose problem is that, right? Everyone thinks it's an elder problem. It's not. Yeah. I'm 41, it touches me. Absolutely. And so for me to get notified of changes in my dad's credit card balances are rising every month because he's forgetting to pay them because he suddenly has subscriptions signed up. Yeah. I should be notified of those things. First, it was very difficult for me beforehand to get access to his, his accounts. Almost impossible. Yep. Try to get access to the power attorney and see how much fun that is. And second is, uh, is getting, you know, if I don't look at the accounts and I don't notice it. So starting to take ML and AI and then creating smart notifications, not just to the individual, but the team, is an incremental level of security. It's notifying, it's not about us preventing fraud. Mm. I'm not gonna ever say that, but it's about catching it early and notifying the people early is better than finding out two, three months later when there's a real big problem. And most frauds are typically tested slowly and then they get bigger. I mean, personal experience, I, you know, it just so happened that these fraudsters did it while I was on vacation. But, you know, you can see the credit card transactions. They go with, you know, a $5 transaction to a $50 transaction. Next thing you know, they're buying jewelry at $20,000, right? So luckily we caught that one very early. But nevertheless, yeah, the, the ability to basically see that kind of escalating behavior out of... and sure again, your wife didn't want to catch that no, transaction she didn't want jewelry to catch, of $20,000. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, luckily that, was the, that could have been in serious trouble. That was the business account, thank yeah. goodness. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like now you're talking back, we're going back to the entire artificial intelligence and data mining. Mm-hmm. I mean, the those types of behavioral patterns patterns of, of, of people who create those, commit those frauds are probably very predictable, right? And the fact that you can look for those and be, you know, be the alert from data mining, that, that's incredible. Yeah, there's some, you know, and you're always trying to improve, but there's some pretty basic stuff um, that could be done. And, and so we actually think it's an enhancement to security in a different way. It's just notifying people. So one thing we haven't talked about yet is what do you cost? <laughs> uh, it's free. Uh, no, uh, we everything's we, free now. No, I, I was joking. Yeah, of course, I said free is if you're if it's free, there's a problem. Usually, yes. you're the customer, and so actually, right now, we uh, our platform is free. We uh, that's a strategic decision for us. Um, yeah. We have the ability to turn on pricing, um, you know, tomorrow. And to be to just be clear for the listeners, you guys are really new. Like you guys just launched uh, fully. When was it? We've launched just say in the summer of last year, yeah. and then opened up to a water or to anyone uh, in October of this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had some pretty strong metrics so far. 
not just signups, but actual engagement and things like that with the platform. So we're going to have a, a freemium solution, some pretty simple aggregation tools and sharing uh, things of that nature will be free. But as you start to get into analytics and some incremental features, there'll be a monthly subscription for it. Mm-hmm. And then on the enterprise or professional side, it's a, um, a per household per month charge. And we're looking at for that. You figured that uh, out yet? I can't or is that tell you. We, still we, working on it. Yeah, we, we we could talk about it offline Fair after. Enough. We have, uh, you know, my Don't joke worry, is people we're, we're negotiating we're, down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've been told we, pricing your first time around is never. You're not going to get it right. No. And our objective is not to get it right. Our objective is for Jason to say, Brad, I can't live without this. Exactly. And uh, and, and then tax me high and, higher and, rate. and then just kill you with pricing. <laughs> uh, no, um, we, we just people. We just. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so that's where uh, pricing will will come out most likely in Q two. Uh, okay. Uh, charging. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's frankly something, you know, we've talked about what the kind of holy grail of client reporting for me has always been. It's been the ability to to basically aggregate the client account level data, but to do so in a goals-based manner and to have that the financial planning data speak to that. So whether yeah. that be a dial or a pair of charts that show you how you're doing in relation to your goal, but then also be able to truly have that 360 view of your life, right? Which is the aggregation of all your accounts. So you see all your net worth in there to be able to, I mean, the fact that you guys, you take into a dimension I didn't think of in terms of the level of sharing, right? Mm-hmm. To be able to collaborate with professionals as necessary, release data as necessary, and actually kind of have that really, that vault of your life, which is you guys are the closest I've ever seen come to that. So well done there. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, I appreciate that obviously. And, and I wish I could read the email uh, I got from you. Part of releasing to the public is you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And I think your email was, where did you guys come from? Well, cause, and, and, <laughs> that, and, and that was, yeah. uh, it was, it was hilarious to see. And it turned into a great relationship for us because of, of your, your wealth of knowledge in the industry and how you view your your business um, is, is pretty tremendous. That's why I was kind of surprised. Where did you guys come from? I was, we I, did it by, on purpose. Is yeah. We didn't want people to know what we were doing. We built under a rock, as, uh, yeah. as I describe it. And we've had some pretty remarkable conversations with people. Similar, some different. Of Guys, you're, you're doing something great. Thank you for helping me yeah. in this way. And so getting feedback like that from you means a lot. Very much appreciate it. Hopefully this leads to more feedback. And so anyway, uh, anyone who wants to check it out again, and what's the website? Honest.com, O-N-I-S-T.com. So that was Brad from Honest, and uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate it. So that was my interview with Brad Katansky of Honest Technologies. I hope you take the time to visit Honest.com, O-N-I-S-T, and see for yourself just how this can enable your financial future or the communication of your financial future and how it can enable advisors and other professionals to better collaborate with their clients. With that, I'm Jason Pereira and this is FinTech Impact. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.